Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this online church service. Uh, Before we get started, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bible, if you have an old-fashioned Bible or electronic Bible of some sort, uh, a Bible app or something, go ahead and open that up to Joshua chapter 5. But I also want to let you know briefly that we have a member in our church that works at Hershey Med and actually wanted to contribute in some way to the medical staff there as well as the patients and some other uh, social service workers as well. And he found a way. He partnered with somebody in leadership at Hershey Med. And there's something that all of us can do as a church family, and it's great for families. If you have little kids and so forth, uh, you can be a part of this too. Go ahead and go to hfcinfo.com, and you can find out more about that opportunity if you would like to be involved. So thanks for checking that out. But hey, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5 today, so go ahead and open that up. Uh, And just in case you've missed any of this series, uh, or maybe this is your first time worshiping with us and and hearing this, we've been going through the first part of the Old Testament, so the first few books of the Bible. And so if you've missed anything up to this point, here's sort of the key information you have to know as we jump in to the book of Joshua today. So uh, mankind, thousands of years ago, was going about their business. Everyone was doing their own thing, and there was relatively little knowledge about God or how, uh, how to have any kind of relationship with him. God wanted to change that. He wanted to enter the story, and so he made an appearance and sent a message to a man named Abraham. And he gave this man, Abraham, three promises. The first promise was that he was going to give Abraham and his family a piece of land. And when I say piece of land, I don't mean two and a half acres in Mechanicsburg with a wraparound porch and a shed in the back. I mean an extensive piece of land in which an entire nation could be a part of, and so the land of Israel as we know it today. The second part of the promise was that Abraham was going to have many children, not children of his own necessarily, but but descendants. So his family line was going to grow and expand to the point where it could multiply and occupy this entire land, the land that we now know to be Israel. And all that was really laying the foundation for the third part of that promise to come true. The third part was that Abraham and his family would be a blessing to all nations. And that means several things. Primarily, it means that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, would be born in this nation. He would actually be an Israelite. He would come from this land, and, 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 and the stage would be set for him to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to offer, res, uh, to offer resurrection to all those who follow him, and to restore this world to the way that it should be. And so we pick up in this story at a place where Joshua and the people of Israel are about to jump into that first promise. They're about to actually take the land that God has promised the people. And I got to tell you, this is an exciting time. We don't have time to read Joshua chapters one through five, but it lays the groundwork and just shows that this is such an exciting time for the Israelites. First off, we read the first couple verses, and it sounds like it's kind of heavy there, but it says that Moses, the Lord's servant, died. But what it's getting at is that the baton of leadership is moving from Moses, this, this legendary, epic leader who led the Israelites out of Egypt and, 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 and has been talking about the promised land. He has passed away, and the baton is being handed to this guy named Joshua. And Joshua, he's a known character to the Israelites. He was Moses' right-hand guy for, for, for several years, for decades. He's a trustworthy guy, and he's one bad mamma jamma. If anybody can lead these people into the land and conquer the Canaanites and drive them out so Israel can occupy this land, Joshua is the guy to do it. Furthermore, there's a new generation of people that are, that are chewing at the bits to get into this new land. And as we start out this story, we see that they have this miraculous moment where they cross the River Jordan. They're on the western bank of Jordan. The, the, the river stops. God performs a miracle. They walk through, uh, and, and the river starts back again. And then they go through these ceremonies where they just want to pause and remember 
remember this moment. They build these monuments. They go through the ceremony of, of circumcision for all the boys and men to signify that, yes, we are dedicated to God's mission. We are dedicated to God's purpose and are forsaking all other gods, and we're doing it through this ceremony of circumcision. And then after that, they celebrate Passover, which was the big holiday. It was, it was the biggest holiday in Israel. And so they celebrate Passover. And the cool thing about this is they are setting foot on the new land. For the first time, they are eating food, eating meat and, and, and vegetation and fruit. They are eating from the new land that they were going to. The manna stops in this moment. They are not eating from that, from the wilderness. They are entering the new land. And, and God even has this message that he gives to, Israel, to Joshua. Let me read this for you. In Joshua 5, God gives this message to them. Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. In other words, you have been branded as slaves. You've been branded as nomads. You've been branded as nobodies, as weak, as useless, as just slaves for life. I have pulled you out of that. Now you have a new leader. You have a new mission. You're in a new land. You're beginning a new chapter with a new generation. I am rebranding you and giving you this new identity. The reproach of Egypt and slavery has been rolled away, God says, and you're about to enter this new land. Israel will redefine itself. So this is an exciting time. However, we're sort of put on stop as we finish out chapter 5 of Joshua. I want you to read this with me. Look at Joshua 5 and verse 13. All this has happened, and here's where we pick up. Joshua 5, 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, Well, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So we have this story where all these ceremonies have taken place. They're finally uh, setting foot on the new land. Everybody's excited. They're chewing at the bit to get started at at, at this battle that they're going to fight for God where they clear out the the Canaanites and they inhabit this new land. And they finally get the promises that were promised to Abraham. And then Joshua gets this visit from the commander of the Lord's army. And he approaches the commander and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the commander says, neither. Some of your English translations might just have the word no. Are you on our side or enemy side? No. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a surprising answer. Every time I read this story, I have full expectation that the commander is going to have some other answer. I have full expectation that this this angelic messenger from God is going to throw his sword down. He's going to take his helmet and throw it off his head and cast it behind him. And, and he's going to run after Joshua. He's going to embrace him and hug him and say, of course I'm on your side, buddy. Of course, I've got this. This is my battle. You, you're not going to have any casualties. You're going to be fully successful. Of course I'm on your side. We got this. And, and to have this, this great chariots of fire moment. But that doesn't happen at all. In fact, the exact opposite happens. The commander stands his ground. He's holding his sword and he says, I'm not on your side. I'm not on your enemy's side. The implication is God doesn't pick sides. He has his own side. God doesn't follow anybody's agenda. He has his own agenda. And the real question is, are you going to be on his side? Are you going to follow his agenda? 
Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this where, where you were following God's will. You had made the sacrifices. You had made the hard decisions. And, and, and even though it was difficult, you, you, were, you were leaning in obedience to what you thought God's was, ne- was God's next step for your faith journey. And then as you go down that path, everything fell apart and you left, were left wondering, is God even on my side? What is going on right now? Have you ever had an experience like that? I tell you, I certainly have. And, and, and my mind instantly goes to 2012. 2012 was a year in which I was working for a church. I was early in my career and newly wed as well to my wife, Anna. We didn't have kids yet. And we had come to a moment where we were thoroughly convinced that God was calling us to to move on from this state that we lived in, to move to a different state, to a new city, and I was going to go to grad school. I felt as though I really needed some further education in theology. I needed some further training in doing ministry and leading a church. And so, so we were thoroughly convinced that this, this was God's next step for me to continue to serve him and his church for the rest of our lives. And, and, and so, so we made this move. And, and just like the Israelites at this time, as they're following God's will, they, it was an exciting time of applying for school and then getting accepted to grad school and then moving and going into this new apartment. It, it, was, it was all exciting. But once we got there, we faced a series of unfortunate events, I would call them. The first thing that happened, it was pretty minor, but it just felt like an omen of what was to come. Just a couple of days after being there, it was like day three or something like that of, of being in this new city and about to start this new life and this new channel of obedience to God. Uh, somebody in the middle of the day busted into my truck, just busted the window, ripped the radio out and ran off. And it just felt like a welcome to the neighborhood gone terribly wrong. And so we had to pay for that and get that fixed. Just a couple weeks after that, we found out that we were pregnant with our first child. And, and looking back, of course, we, we can't imagine life any different without our kids. We love our kids and, and it's worked out and it's been amazing. We're so grateful for that experience. But, but in the moment we were thinking, hey, this was not part of the plan. Anna was going to work full-time. She was going to build her career. I was going to go full-fledged into, into grad school. We were going to get out of this with no debt. I mean, how, how are we going to feed a, a, a third person? How, how, how are we going to juggle this? And it was, it was just, this was not part of the plan. This is not what we were originally planning to happen. And so that happened, and that was heavy on my mind. Uh, Anna, of course, got employed, and then I ended up getting a job a, a, as well. And about two months into my first semester of grad school, Anna's still pregnant at this time, I had this medical hiccup happen. And I kid you not, spontaneously, one of my lungs collapses. I've never heard of this happening to anybody before. I'm going about a very mundane, boring day of my life at work, and my lung collapses. It just decides it's going to ball up like a wet sock. And so I'm rushed into the hospital. I spend three days in the hospital. I get back. I'm trying to recover. We're getting slews of bills. You know, some of you have been in this situation. And I kid you not. We had moved to this new city with thousands of dollars in savings, enough to pay for the first semester and most of the second semester of grad school out of pocket. We had uh, several, a couple months' worth of expenses uh, paid for with our savings so that we could get our feet on the ground and get our new jobs. All of that was gone instantly. Now it was replaced with thousands of dollars of debt, of medical debt. I don't know how I'm going to pay for school. I don't know if I'm going to drop out. I, I, we got a baby coming in just a couple months. I mean, w- what's going to happen and then I call up my boss and tell him after a couple of weeks that I'm healed, I'm ready to get back to work. I was an independent contractor, so there was no sick pay or anything like that. And he tells me all my jobs have been given away to other contractors. He has no work for me. I can't express how down in the dumps I was in this moment. And I had several times where I went to God in prayer, and although I, did, I didn't word it the same way that Joshua did in the story, I was basically asking, God, are you on my side or are you on my enemy's side? What is going on? I was following your will. I was doing what I thought was the next step in obedience to fulfilling your mission. And I feel like you have, you have just put something in my back. I mean, what is going on here? Are you on my side or my enemy's side? 
And one thing that God could have been teaching me in that moment is that God doesn't pick sides. He has his own side. God doesn't go along with anyone's agenda. He has his own agenda. And the question that I really had to answer was, am I going to be on his side? Am I going to be going on board with his agenda? And so the commander tells him, he says, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, as much as I want this commander to just hug it out with Joshua and say, of course I'm on your side. You got this. There's going to be no casualties. As as much as I want that to happen, I think we need to realize that the promise that was made to the Israelites that they would inhabit this land, that, that didn't necessarily mean that Joshua or this current generation of Israelites were going to be the ones to inhabit the land. In fact, I would even say furthermore, the promise went two ways. God said, if you follow my instructions very clearly, if you follow my instructions perfectly, you will inherit this new land and things will go well for you. But I also promise that if you do not obey my word, if you do not follow through with the mission that I have planned out, you're basically telling me that you're forming your own agenda and forming your own side. I can't be a part of that. And the Canaanites are gonna eat you alive. I need you to be on my side, on board with my agenda. And if that happens, we will be successful. Is how that could be communicated. The land is God's land. The mission was God's mission. The people were God's people. Every, all of it belonged to God. Now, as I go through this, there were three questions that came to mind that I thought maybe some of you watching this right now may be asking yourself as well. So I just wanna walk through these three questions and give the best answer that I can. Hopefully that'll help us understand this text and what God wants us to learn from it. So here's the first question. Why does God have an army and a commander. Why does God have an army and a commander? You see, I, I've always thought that God was a God of love, that uh, you know, Christianity is a religion about peace, and that uh, you know, we're, maybe the goal is for us just to kind of get along and, and hug it out and be nice to each other. However, I want you to know that, yes, God is a God of love. However, God's love is not a simple love. Jesus walked this earth for 33 years and he was, he was uh, God in the flesh and he didn't walk around just hugging people and helping old ladies across the street and being everybody's all supportive BFF. I mean, yes, he, he does love people. However, that's not real love. That's, that's more of a Hallmark movie. You see, the love of God includes a hatred for evil. And in fact, I think the best way to describe what it means to be Christ-like and what it means to, uh, to, to, to describe God is this way. Hebrews 1.9 tells us this. About Jesus, the writer is saying, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness as he's speaking about Jesus. That's how he lived his life. So the love of God includes a sense of justice and against battling against evil so that the greatest good can be done in God's creation and for God's people. Now, I think it's something that probably bothers a lot of us. It's bothered me at various points is, well, what about the Canaanites? What about the people that are living in this land? God has called Joshua and he even gave them a command that they were to annihilate everyone living in the land, all these people groups living in Canaan. That doesn't sound like the kind of God that I worship. And although I can't give an elaborate explanation of this, I can't take three minutes and just explain it in a way that satisfies even my own explanation of this. I I, I don't wanna just graze over this and pretend as if it isn't there. And if you have small kids in the room, just have them cover their ears for about 60 seconds and, and we'll be done with this. But I think it's important to realize that the people that were living in Canaan, I don't want to sugarcoat this, they were abundantly wicked people. They were bloodthirsty people who worshiped bloodthirsty gods. And these bloodthirsty gods expected them to be violent and atrocious in every way. However you want to define the word barbaric, these people were barbaric people. Part of their temple worship, part of their worship to these gods is that they would go into the temple 
and they would have violent prostitutional acts against women and girls as an act of worship to their God. They would sacrifice their children to their gods, their very own children. And if you were to read through the laws of the Old Testament, so if you were to read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, parts of Numbers and so on and so forth, if you read through and find some disturbing laws in there about sexuality and, and bestiality and how to treat prisoners of war, and, and, and there's things that you read in there and you think, why does there have to be a law about this? It's because the people living in Canaan were those kind of people. They were abundantly wicked. And yes, there was a sense in which God wanted, wanted them to come into the fold. God wanted them to become part of his people, to forsake their gods and follow him. And that happened on a few occasions. We have Rahab and her family. We have the Gibeonites. There's a few antidotal examples of that. But for the most part, these people were not having it. They were not going to do that. They were, coming, they, they were coming like a fire against Israel. And they were going to eat them alive if a battle was not fought. And this was phase one in God's plan that they had to have the land. They had to multiply the nation so the stage could be set for the Messiah, for Jesus to come. And if they had not taken the land, there would be no Jesus. There would be no resurrection. There would be no Easter morning. There would be no salvation. There would be no forgiveness of sins for you and me. That's the best explanation that I can give for this. So why does God have an army and a commander? Why all the fighting? Well, I think the simple answer is God is love, and that love includes a sense of justice and a hatred for evil. God doesn't pick sides. He has his own side. God doesn't go along with anyone's agenda. He has his own agenda. And the true question is, are we going to be on his side? Are we going to be on board with his agenda? And if you are, that includes joining a war against evil. Now, here's a second question that I had that I thought maybe some of you would have as well. Why is the commander's sword drawn? Is he trying to intimidate Joshua? Is he trying to scare somebody? What, what is he trying to prove? Why is the commander's sword drawn and in his hand? I think the best answer to that is that it's because he came to fight. And he wasn't going to fight Joshua. He wasn't coming to destroy the Israelites. Otherwise, he would have. He came to show Joshua that his sword is in hand. I'm the commander, and, and there's an army behind me that you can't see, and we all have swords in hands, and we are here to fight for you. At the end of Joshua, Joshua 23.3, it says, uh, It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Joshua 23.3. Verse 10, One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. Joshua was intended to see this warrior, this Mandalorian kind of creature, as this sign that God is going to fight for us. And ultimately, this battle isn't our battle. It's God's battle. This is God's land. We are God's people. All of this ultimately belongs to God. We're just on board with his mission. God doesn't pick sides. It's his side. God doesn't go along with anyone's agenda. He has his own agenda. It all belongs to God ultimately. And the question is, are we going to be on his side? Are we going to be on board with his agenda? Now, here's the third question, the final question that I had. Why does the commander say he isn't on Israel's side? That's been so perplexing. Why does the commander say that he is not on Israel's side? I think the best way that I can describe this is that for me personally, and probably for many of you, it's easy for me to understand the promises of God in a way that benefit me the most, and I tend to read into them, and I tend to think that everything is about me. You see, I read Romans 8, for instance, Romans 8.31, and it's easy for me to read it this way. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Again, verse 31 reads this way, if God is for us, who can be against us? And sometimes I want to read that and say, yeah, God is for me. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. You know, we have this virus going around, but, but God is for me. He's on my side. And, and so therefore, yeah, I'm not going to be harmed by this. Nobody in my family is going to pass away from this. Uh, you know, my economic situation isn't going to change because God is for me. Nobody can be against me. However, that's, that's, that's wrongly reading that promise. God is for me, but he shows me what he is in for me for 
I don't know how to word that better, but you know what I mean. Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That comes right after that text that I just read. Is God for me? Of course he's for me. He, that doesn't mean that he's going to save me from trouble and hardship and persecution and so forth. But he will be with me as I endure these kind of hardships. And if I'm on board with his mission, I might not personally be successful, but the mission as a whole will be successful and I'll be part of that mission. And ultimately, when I do pass away, however that happens, I will be with him forever. And I'm going to see all this from a new perspective. So why does the commander say he's not on Joshua's side? I think the simple answer is because he's not. God doesn't pick a side. He has his own side. He doesn't go along with anyone's agenda. He has his own agenda. And the real question is, for Joshua at least, and for us, are you on his side and are you on board with his agenda? Now, as we wrap this up, I just want us to read the final words, some of the final words, the final chapter of the book of Joshua. We're skipping a lot, of course, and going to Joshua 24. And let's start in verse 28. So Joshua 24, verse 28. Joshua has just finished giving a speech to the people of Israel, and here's what he does. Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Serah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Gaash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. I'm going to read that part again, verse 31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And I think it's intended for us to pick up this book and say, wait, the baton was handed off from Moses to Joshua. Then Joshua served the Lord, and, he, and he's handed off the baton, and now it's my turn. I'm a part of this mission. And the next part of the mission is phase three, be a blessing to all nations. The Messiah has come. The gospel has to get out, and I'm a part of this mission. And God is asking me, are you going to pick up the baton? Are you going to be on board with this mission? And if you are, I'm for you. If you're on my side, I'll be for you in that. Now, this final stage of God's plan, spreading the gospel, how are you going to be a part of that? For some of you, it means sitting down with people that you know and explaining the good news of the gospel and explaining why you've decided to follow Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. For others of you, it means working in your workplaces and serving your clients and, and, and pumping out your products and, 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 and uh, uh, performing the services that you deliver and changing the world through service and generosity and humility and, and, and making this, this a more flourishing society in the name of Jesus. For others of you, it means financially supporting the mission of this church or other gospel-centered missions and ministries throughout the world. And hopefully for all of us, it means several of these things. Are you going to be a part of this mission that God has called us to? God doesn't pick sides. He has his own. God doesn't follow anyone's agenda. He has his own agenda. The question is, are you on his side? Are you going to be on board with his agenda? And now with that said, as we close out, I just want to let you know that church is far from over. When the screen goes black, when the, when the screen goes blank and the TV or, 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 or computer or whatever you're looking on is turned off, I want you to know that church is starting right then. You see, you and I, we've been sent to fulfill the final phase of God's plan, spreading the gospel message. We've been sent to have conversations with people in our small group and in our church about how we will accomplish this mission. We are being sent to go about God's work in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community, wherever God has called us. We are not dismissed. We are being sent and church starts right now.